For the rest of April, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. My thanks to Courtney for reading it to us. And it'll be the same passage next week also, two weeks in Luke 10, 1 to 24. We will return to Romans, to Romans chapters 4 and 5 in the month of May. I announced when I began Romans that we would break it up in smaller sections. Some of you will remember that. And that we would make each section of Romans its own series And between those sections of Romans, we would punctuate with smaller series. So here we are in Luke 10, which I am offering to you as something of an application of what we focused on in Romans chapters 1 through 3, and that is why the doctrine of sin matters. If people are in the condition before God that Romans chapters 1 and 3 say we are, what are we to do about that? Well, Luke 10 gives us this. And why the doctrine of sin matters, it matters to our comprehension of God's grace, of God's glory. It matters to our apprehension of the gospel. But it also matters to our mission. And this is what we get in Luke 10. We get our mission, which is to to bear the message of salvation, salvation for sin, to bear this to people, to move into the harvest as Jesus refers to it in Luke 10 here, to dive in even, but with the right motivation. That motivation being we are recipients of great grace. He says, don't, don't rejoice that, that you've got this great authority and, and power that even, even the demons are subject to you. He says, what you rejoice in is that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10 gives us a gospel drama playing out. What God brought us in on in redeeming us is the drama of the eternal. That's what I'm calling our our little series here for her April in Luke 10. And I get this way of putting it, the drama of the eternal, from a book that the staff is reading together right now. It's by an author named Sky Jathani. It's called Immeasurable, subtitled Reflections on the Soul of Ministry in the Age of Church Incorporated. And in one of his chapters, he says, we are each of us at any given moment engaged in three dramas, which he calls the drama of the practical, the drama of the theoretical, and the drama of the eternal. The drama of the practical is the stuff of everyday life, making a living, raising a family, participating in community, all these practices and the practical aspects of our life. The drama of the theoretical is our thinking. It's the stuff of our beliefs and our assumptions about ourselves and others and the world that we share. If in the drama of the practical, we're busy running our lives, in the drama of the theoretical, we're, we're thinking about how and why we run our lives. We're asking questions of our experiences in a shared world. The drama of the eternal intersects with the dramas of the practical and the theoretical because in Christ we understand that this life here and now is not all there is. We are by grace through faith recipients of eternal life which means here and now true relationship with the only true God whom we will eventually see and live with and reign with forever because our sin penalty has been paid for us in full by Jesus 
And thus the sin that we learned about in Romans chapters 1 through 3, the the sin and categories of unrighteousness and self-righteousness both, this is no longer held against us. The drama of the eternal. The drama of the eternal is the stuff of Christian message and messaging. It's the stuff of the gospel. It's the stuff of the, the message of the cross, the messaging of the cross, spoken words about our sin and a savior from our sin, spoken words about why God uniquely broke into history in the person of his son. The gospel is a message. It is something we believe and we can even talk about living the gospel, but the gospel fundamentally is something spoken. And that's what these 72 in Luke 10, these 72 were sent out here to do. Namely, two things. They were sent out to speak and to serve. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go, towns and places where he himself would be received and also rejected because the message is attractive and offensive both. It's not one or the other. It's attractive and offensive at the same time. But here we see these early followers empowered by God to do preaching, that is the the power to persuade, to to talk to people about the gospel. This is verse 9, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They're given uh, the authority over demons. They can cast out demons, verse 17, they come back rejoicing that this happened. And the power to heal, verse 9, beginning of verse 9, heal the sick. In fact, the only power that Jesus ever grants his followers is along these very lines. Jesus did not grant us political power to rule societies. He did not grant us economic power whereby we control the world. We don't bring people to faith by ruling over them or by buying their allegiance to God. Some Christians get political power and economic power and steward it well and are influential with it. But we learn from church history, going all the way back to the fourth century up into the present time, when Christians wield power for the cause of Christ, often we do a poor job with it. Church history is checkered with this. It doesn't always turn out like we hope. And it can often seem to secularized people when Christians are in control that, that, that we're trying to coerce or buy their belief. The only power Jesus granted his followers, and we see it on display here in Luke 10, and it's still the only power he grants us, is the power to persuade, the power to care, to speak and to serve in his name. Look at these 72 followers. Jesus sent them out the same way he sent out the 12 disciples before them. In fact, if you'll turn over a page or scroll up or down, however you're looking at it electronically, to Luke 9, one chapter before in Luke 9, look at Luke 9, verse 1. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now we have the very same thing in Luke 10, but expanded out to 72 now. Why is it expanded? 
The same thing the disciples get in chapter 9, now the 72 get in chapter 10. Why? One reason is because this work of moving into the harvest, as Jesus calls it in verse 2 of chapter 10, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This work is not just for the professionals. If all you had was Luke chapter 9, God sending out the disciples, then you could say it's for the ministers, it's for the clergy, it's for the twelve. But you get Luke chapter 10, it's expanded out to the 72. All followers of Jesus are empowered by Jesus to speak and to serve in his name. There's actually another reason that 72 specifically are sent out. It's a specific number. Jesus wants the world. He's the Lord of the harvest. That's what he's calling God here. The Lord of the harvest wants the whole world. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, we won't, I'll just tell you it's there. But in Genesis 10, there's something called the table of nations. And there's 72 nations there through the sons of Noah. Jesus is drawing on that very specifically, which to an ancient reader would connect. He's drawing upon the table of nations in Genesis 10 to say, my intended reach is everybody. The gospel goes out to all. So it's not just 72. It happened, somebody counted. No, we got 72 here. It's 72 linked to Genesis 10. What I want to do this week and next is focus on the speech part of our mission. Uh, in verses 1 to 24, this power to persuade, as, as I'm calling it, the serving part of our mission is also here in verses 1 through 24, speech and service. But we'll get to the service part more directly in verses 25 to 37 when we do. And then the last Sunday in the month, we will conclude with two more followers who are also on mission... Two sisters, Martha and Mary, who together in their little drama inhabit the tension between speech and service. It's very important to note what all Luke puts into this one chapter, how purposeful he links everything that's here. So today and next Sunday, verses 1 through 24, our experience, we're the 72, 72 times 72 exponentially now as the church grows and moves to the world. But this is us. Our experience of being sent by Jesus to speak and to serve much like he sent the original 12 in Luke chapter 9 and similarly empowered. It doesn't look precisely the same way. We're not going to read this woodenly, but we go out and we preach the gospel. We proclaim the good news. We persuade people of the truth of God in Christ experience of casting out demons. Sometimes that's actual. Other times that's more the work of, of liberating, liberating people, people from what enslaves them. That's gospel interest. Verse 17, healing the sick. Obviously it's the mending of bodies, healing infirmities. But when you get this context here, this mention of communities, towns and places, Verses 10 to 16, by extension, you've got the, the healing of communities where the gospel goes to work among people. There is collective benefit for that. Let's focus on the speech part by taking two aspects over two Sundays. Today, the mission of our messaging 
And then next Sunday, the motivation for our messaging. That's what we're going to talk about this week and next in these first 24 verses. The mission of our messaging today. And then next Sunday, we'll get to something that's just as important, and that's the motivation. Why? Why do we do this? The motivation for our messaging. Today, what is the mission of the message? It is, to put it in a phrase, it is to move into the harvest. The Lord of the harvest is sending. We're to move into the harvest with a message. A message that has definitive content about God and about sin and about humanity and the created order, both seen and unseen. The gospel is a cosmic declaration reverberating across time throughout generations to the ends of the earth. Don't fall for the assumption. It's popular. I was in a, a, a place this week and I saw it on the wall and so thought about this immediately. Uh, the idea, it's misattributed to St. Francis. There's, there's no um, historical record that he said this. Bless his heart. He's been painted with this uh, for, for eons, you know, but he doesn't care. He's in heaven. The assumption that you're sharing the gospel all the time and when necessary use words that's a postmodern idea. That assumption is based on the idea, it's really based on the mood, that words are kind of meaningless anyway. They don't matter. No Christian should feel that. No Christian should believe that. We are people of the incarnate word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It is necessary to use words in messaging Christ. There's, there's a difficulty because words are the very thing that everybody's oversensitive to now, right? We feel it, we see it, we know it, we experience it ourselves. Yes, the gospel is demonstrated in and through our good works, absolutely. But no one is saved by your way. No one is saved by your life. The gospel is we have to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. We have to talk about his way and his life. His truth is the only way anyone gets saved. And this is not easy for us. No, it isn't. To talk about Jesus Christ. We live in a very polarized age where persuasion is made all the more difficult by the extreme hold people have on their views, the inability and unwillingness to think outside their echo chamber. Identity politics dominate the left and the right. Everything's tribal. This is the society we're in. But it really wasn't any easier. I'm, I'm thankful for the honesty of this text. Not that any text of Scripture is dishonest, you understand. But the way this text shows us that it really wasn't any easier back then for these 72 to talk about Jesus in ancient contexts, ancient cities. You see this in verses 10 through 12, verses 10 through 16 especially. There's different reasons when you compare the ancient context and the modern. There's different reasons why it was difficult back then compared to now. But the same degree of difficulty has always been true. Nevertheless, Jesus telling us in verse 2 
that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As he sends out the 72, as it were, as he sends out everyone with him to everyone else, that's the picture that there's a harvest, that Jesus can say the harvest is plentiful, is its own verification of the doctrine of sin. There would be no harvest if there were no sinners. There would be no harvest if there was not a gracious God willing to send his son who in turn sends us out into the world after him, a world that he entered, why? A world he entered to reconcile to himself. But that the world needs to be reconciled means what? Means expect some opposition. Expect some opposition when you speak of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Even though it's a beautiful message that we've been entrusted with. It's beautiful to us. It's a beautiful mission. I mean, we'll get to Romans 10 eventually, a year or so from now. And in Romans 10, you get that, that statement of how beautiful are the feet on the mountains. I mean, the gospel even makes feet beautiful. You know, if we don't tend to think feet are beautiful. Our mission is to move into the harvest with the message of the gospel. Jesus wants the world. That is good news. And we'll get all we need from God to do it. You know, that's the point of verse 4. We're not taking this passage in a, in a chronological approach. We're just, we're, we're bits and piecing here in service to, to theme. But the point of verse 4, when he says, carry no money, no knapsack, no sandals, greet, greet no one on the road, he, he's, he's saying, you're going to have all you need from God to do this. Don't worry about the provisions. Just do the work. And it's, even the instructions are beautiful, I think. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. If you find somebody who's compliant and willing to have dialogue with you, great. If you find somebody combative and resistant to you, okay. And he gives instructions on how to handle that later. But he says in verse 7, remain in the same house, the house where you're welcomed, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from, from house to house. In other words, you're not going to do this alone, these instructions. And you're, you're not going to get it all done There were 72 sent, not just 12, not just two, but 72, two by two. And he says there in verse seven, don't go from house to house. Don't try to do it all. In other words, remain where you're received. You know, we talk about working ourselves out of a job. Remain where you're received and work yourself out of a witness there before moving on. That when you leave the place, there are disciples, there are are people who who, who love the Lord and And you work yourself out of a witness. Yes, some will find themselves sent to harder places at great risk to themselves. Some will move around. It happens. But you know, most of us, most of us will remain where we're received and we'll apply the gospel there through persuading. We'll apply the gospel there through seeking to liberate what's enslaving people. We'll apply the gospel there through through, through mending what needs healing. 
This is our mission. And when it works, man, it is beautiful when it works. It is. And yet we get the other side of the same economy here too. Verses 10 through 16, we get the rejection. You know, verses 5 to 9, you get the reception. In verses 10 to 16, you get rejection. And we'll come back through this again next week. But just to point out today, we live where, especially it pertains to speech and speech patterns and what we say and don't say and all of that. We, we live today in a cultural complex of non-conversion, right? The prevailing idea is that nobody is supposed to make anybody else believe what they don't want to believe. You're not supposed to coerce your beliefs. You're not supposed to be heavy-handed in that way. And because we're converted already, because we're the church, we're the believers, you take what I'm saying this morning for granted. I mean, we, that we have a message? Duh. Yeah, I know we have a message. What's new? It's a, we have a mission for messaging? Okay, I get it. We have to get the message out? Yeah, I've heard that before. But there are people who would be horrified listening to me right now. How can you tell these people to go out and convert others? That's arrogant. This is what our Chorazin, see the place names in verses 13 and 15, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. This is what our Chorazins and Bethsaidas and Capernaums are like today to play off these place names here in verses 13 and 15. In today's versions of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, in the Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum complex, you're not supposed to try to make anyone believe what you believe. Now, they feel greater cultural pressure about this on the coasts of our country. Here in the middle of the country, we don't feel this as greatly, but it's coming. Just as it is on the, on the great coastal cities, it's coming, pushing more into the, to the center. This prevailing idea that you're not supposed to try to make anyone believe what you believe, it's seen as really arrogant to do. And to do so is therefore to court hostility. This is what will get you kicked out. He talks about getting kicked out of these, uh, of these cities, preparing them for that eventuality that may come in verses 10 to 12, and then, and then pronouncing woes on the places where it effectively happened in verses 13 to 16. This is what gets you kicked out of modern-day Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Again, there's different reasons between the ancient context and the modern, different reasons for why opposition and how it tracks but the same degrees of difficulty attend the mission then and now. The mission has always required courage from those who actually do it. I mean, there's plenty of people on the sidelines watching and taking their shots. But when you get out there, it takes courage and it takes resilience. But listen, we're not getting kicked out of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum today so much as we are Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. The idea of, of, of persecution against evangelicals in this country is way overplayed. At most, we're finding that elites and people uh, who control the opinions and framework of the country aren't friendly to some of the things that we believe, but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't amount to persecution. 
We are the culture now. The gospel needs to bring Christians to Jesus Christ. This idea of cultural engagement that evangelicals are always commending, we always talk about engaging the culture, engaging the culture. This is, this is part of our birthright as, as, as evangelicals, at least classic evangelicalism. What evangelicalism has become, a voting block, is something, it's an aberration. Classic evangelicalism was, was committed to this cultural engagement, but the way we often think about it and talk about it, it causes us to think of culture as like the next county over. Culture is over there. It's in, it's in downtown Karazin in the arts district. It's midtown Bethsaida. You know. We need more people in this church who live in midtown. Okay. It's, um, it's the university district of Capernaum. See, that's where culture is, and we will go, and we will engage there, and we will retreat back to our safe places. The problem with our ideas of cultural engagement is that they're misdirected because we are now the culture. The culture is the church. The, cult- the, the church culture is Karazin. The church culture is Bethsaida. The church culture is Capernaum. But far from making us lose heart that it's this way and want to move away from the church, millennials in particular, take note of what I just said. Because your impetus, your impulse is to, is to look at the church in the, in the frame of your grandparents and parents and say, I don't want that. And you back away from it. Don't do that. Far from making us lose heart and want to move away from the church in, in, in something of its worst hour in our country, this should make us all the more desirous to see God bring Christians to Jesus Christ. I love the story it's told. I don't remember who it was and what administration, but there was a um, Jewish member of one of the cabinets, one of the president's cabinets, and I think Chuck Colson tells this story that, um, or maybe Oz Guinness tells it. Uh, I'm a little bit um, misty on details, but I do remember the punchline. This particular man finally came to the Bible study. He was a Jewish man. And, um, and when they asked for prayer at the end, he took everybody's hand and he started to pray. And his prayer was, God, I pray that you will bring Muslims to Jesus Christ. I pray that you will bring Jews to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will bring Christians to Jesus Christ. You see in our text the hostility You see it there, verses 10 to 16, the hostility these 72 experience. You know what that hostility came from in that ancient context, these cities? It comes from their going to these cities and proclaiming the gospel of another Lord who was not Caesar. Another king, another kingdom. The hostility we experience by contrast is because we are too tied to Caesar. Hostility on parallel with what's here in Luke 10 has for most of us far less to do with our core gospel commitment and more to do with the perception that we will sell our souls for political power and influence. I recognize a number of you here will not like hearing me say this, but it's true. 
More often, the cultural hostility directed at us today is not because of our commitment to the gospel, but because the perception is we lack the commitment to it in fundamental ways, and yet we still want to claim it. We want to use it to leverage ourselves. That being said, and I know it's hard to hear, but it's difficult anyway to gain a hearing for the, for, for the message. Why would, we want to, why would we want to make it harder? It's difficult anyway to, to in a hyper-secularizing age, the time of the progressives that we live in, they won the culture war. It's, it's harder anyway to gain a hearing for our message. And, but any, any message that seems exclusive in any way is, is destined to be opposed. But the thing people don't realize is that every belief system is exclusive at points. I mean, if people just think about it, they'll see it. But still, people will say, you shouldn't try to convert anybody. If they sense that you're trying to convert somebody and they don't like that, you'll get their hostility. Even if they deem parts of our message beautiful, attractive, or they think you're the most beautiful example of a Christian they've ever met, still trying to convert people in our cultural complex is ugly. It's an ugly thing to do. That's the cultural assumption. But the moment we encounter this idea that you shouldn't try to convert other people, the moment someone tries to tell you, hey, you shouldn't try to tell this person what to believe, they're actually proselytizing you. You realize that? They've been converted to secularism and they're evangelizing you with their secularism. It's like if you say to somebody, you shouldn't judge, that itself is a judgment. I'm not playing gotcha with people here, it's just clarity. What people are really telling us when they say, you shouldn't try to convert other people, what they're telling us is we can't believe in Jesus as he's presented himself to be believed in. As Lord, how is that not arrogant? They don't always know they're doing this, of course, but to say to us, don't share your gospel of exclusive faith, exclusive grace from God and faith in Jesus as the only way to God, don't be bringing that around here that you're trying to convince people that Christ's truth is truer than theirs and people ought to be free to decide for themselves. What they're saying is you cannot believe that in Christ the fullness of God appeared in flesh, one who uniquely broke into history. And again, they don't often know they're saying that to us, but that's what they're saying. And yet, for us not to take this out, the gospel, it's unloving of us and frankly, it's evil. It would be like if you had the cure for cancer and you decided to box it up and hide it away. But when secularized people do not receive us, like in verse 10 here, in the ancient context, you got it, you think about it in the modern context, when secularized people do not receive us because they object to an exclusive message of of one God and one way to God through Jesus, they're essentially saying, my way of looking at things, that no one knows what truth is absolutely, and any who believe they do ought to be absolutely opposed as narrow and bigoted. How is it that secularized gospel that we all must believe what we want however we we want and no one is permitted to tell us different, how is that that less narrow? It's not. Everyone proselytizes for what they believe in. Everyone does. 
Our gospel is objective news of a history-changing event that affects everybody, and so we have to tell it to everybody. Yes, it tends to work better when you build a relationship, but it still takes courage and resilience even then, and sometimes you don't have time to build a relationship. One of the problems we had with friendship evangelism when we were training in that was that it gave people the idea that if you don't have a relationship, you don't have a friendship, then you don't share the gospel. You don't have time to always build a relationship with people. We're still the sent ones. You don't learn Romans 1 through 3 just to sit on it and admire it. You learn it so that you go out as the 72 and do the work of propagating this message, even though it's very difficult to do it. We're sent to people who need grace, and the only way they can get it, and they're longing for it really, is one place, one person. The one person who said here, verse 18, when he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, that's an incredibly delusional thing to say unless he was really there. You know that, don't you? He's, he is like the guy on the side of the road uh, who's made his egg carton a, a pet if he wasn't there. When he says, I saw Satan fall like light, he's saying, I pre-existed. It's a delusional thing for him to say, unless he really did. And thereby the consequence for rejecting him is Satan's own consequence, that you end up on the wrong side of history in the worst possible way. Now this should, so, this should stoke our compassion for our neighbor, Absolutely. Although compassion is not our primary motivation, more about that next week, but we are messengers to our neighbors. See, this is the chapter, Luke 10, in which, in which Luke put the Good Samaritan story. He put it in this context. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? We tend to look at it alone, but it's in this context of the ones who've been sent because this is the condition of the neighbor in his or her sin. It's like the beaten up guy on the road. If we could just see people as God sees them, see them for what their sin has really done to them. That guy headed down to Jericho, the story that we'll come to in a couple of weeks, he fell into wolves, as it were, right? Men who treated him as if they were wolves. What do we have in verse 3? Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We're not the wolves tearing people apart. We're the lambs. You become a wolf when you rejoice in how good a person you are and that you're not like that person and that person and that person that you can't stand. You become a wolf when you focus on how good a person you are, on how right you are, instead of how graced you are. This table that we're coming to now, this is not about how right you are. It is about how graced you are. It's about how right God is. You become a wolf when you become superior When you elevate yourself on the food chain, the lamb is anything but superior. The lamb has to be shepherded. That's the point of being a lamb. This table is for those who are shepherded. Do you realize the woes directed at these cities? Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Do you realize that woe is not a curse, it's a cry? It's an anguished empathy for the plight, unbelief, and preference for your sin over a Savior. And wolfing at lambs puts you in. Do you realize, when we say, whoa, you're saying, do you realize the trouble that you're in here? Oh, my goodness, I feel for you. That's the emotion of woe. This table speaks a better word to us than the word of woe. It speaks a word of welcome. This table speaks to us of the mission of God for us the message of God to us, the motivation of God for us. 
speaks to us of our redemption, speaks to us of our reconciliation with God. It speaks to us of grace greater than all our sin. Would you join me in prayer? And the men will distribute the elements. Father, we thank you for this time of communion. And we thank you for what the the table speaks, a word of grace based on the self-sacrifice of the God of all. Thank you that in welcoming us to this table, you, you remind us that our sin has been canceled. It's, it's debt to you. It's been paid in full. And though we can name and list a hundred things about ourselves right now that we wish were not so and not true, you still welcome us because this table is perpetually saying to us our sin is not the last word. The last word is Christ's word. It is finished. And because it was finished, because of your great grace, we can have life in your son. And so as we take these elements, as we ingest this little wafer and this little swig of juice, it's an anticipation of what we're going to be overwhelmed by when we awaken in your presence someday. If your return does not precede that. The marriage supper of the lamb, another Another place, another experience of living. We thank you that that's not pie in the sky. We thank you that that's the, that's the completion. That's the finish line. That's the, the experience of everything that we hope for coming true. Thank you for communion. Thank you for, for ingestible elements that that teaches us even as we take the elements that You are that near to us and you care for us that deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.